there. Oh, good. Okay. okay. Yeah, much. All right. Let me do a brief intro and then we'll get right into it because I've uh, been looking forward to this webinar. Let's see. Oh, it's raining in Connecticut. Oh, and I'll freeze later. I, I grew up in Connecticut, so I can totally appreciate it. I remember the ice storm of, let's see, what year was that? I was 16 and um, the power was out for a couple of weeks and we had to live at the neighbor's house next to their little woods, you know, open fireplace and we froze our butts off. And I worked at Baskin Robbins at the time and I had to go to work. <laughs> People were still buying ice cream? No, they weren't. They were buying pizza from this place across the street, but the the manager thought that people would buy ice cream in the middle of an ice storm. And I can remember walking down in my little pink skirt down the road with all the glistening trees all the way down with no power until I got there. Yeah. Anyway, that was a long time ago. <laughs> now, all this stuff gets cut out when I actually post these webinars. So anybody who actually tunes in, they get to hear the little chit chat in the beginning. Okay, here we go. Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic, which is now um, getting close to a year because it was a year in March that I came off the road, stopped teaching and started doing webinars. Um, so we'll have to do something special for the anniversary. I'll check the date and figure that out. But anyway, um, today my guest is Sue Smith and I'm so excited to have Sue here with me because she's one of my favorite people. She is a Surefoot practitioner. She works with thoroughbreds and warm bloods and she has a lovely farm where we've done Surefoot workshops. And um, today she's gonna talk about um, rehoming thoroughbreds. So welcome Sue, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having us and thanks for giving a shout out to the thoroughbreds. It's, okay. uh, it's a great day for sure. Yeah. So Sue, just a lot of people don't know who you are. So um, can you give us like your your like your background in horses and kind of how how did you wind up doing what you're doing now? Sure. Uh, so like everybody else here, I was um, a very adamant th uh, horse fan since I was a little kid and got my start as a working student when I was 11. Um, and it was quite an undertaking. This was uh, back when you would drop your kids off at the barn and not pick them up for weeks. And it was a great time for me and I learned a lot. Um, and also growing up as a working student, not having my own horse, I was able to catch ride a lot and would generally get the horses that nobody else um, was really excited about. But- um, so Were you on the, on the track doing being a working student or? Nope, uh, at a local farm here, just uh, about two miles from here, which was, was very lucky for me. Um, but yeah, yeah, so had a wide background um, riding as a kid, and then after I uh, went to uh, the college at Mount Holyoke, um, another horsey area, was able to take my horses with me, and then came home, and um, my focus has been dressage a lot of that time, mostly because I, uh, when I started out, I was given horses that weren't able to jump, so I had to come up with a new plan, and then got... Um, you know, really found dressage to be exciting. So um, before anyone rolls their eyes, I, I actually do think it's exciting. But uh, yeah, so uh, I had an opportunity to work with a lot of really top people um, and have been very appreciative of that. And then when I got out of college, uh, we started to be more involved online and, and things like, um, you know, chat rooms and, um, all those message boards uh, like Chronicle of the Horse. And, and that's when I realized that there was such a, a need for 
rehoming services for all track thoroughbreds. Um, that when growing up, that was the horse of choice. And yeah. it was uh, a little hard for me to understand that here we are, you know, a few years later and, and uh, these race trainers and grooms, exercise riders were just fleeing for help. You know, they had horses on the track that needed to go. And I thought, well, that's an easy solution because there's riders out there on a budget that are looking for athletic prospects. So all we have to do is put two and two together and it should, should uh, solve the, the problem. So um, that's when I kind of got involved with Canner. Uh, I did uh, do a little fostering for some other organizations, but realized that um, at the time, most of the, what we considered rescues were horses that were in extreme neglect and probably were not going to be rideable. So they were, you know, they were a, a very deserving demographic, but not one that I knew how to address um, very well, you know, in terms of buying, finding homes as pasture pets. So to me, it seemed that the thoroughbred situation was um, a way to help a larger number of horses and a larger number of riders with limited resources. And so that's when I started volunteering for Canner. What year um, was that, Sue? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, I think it's been over 15 years now. Oh, wow. So, okay. So early yeah. 2000s. Yeah, unfortunately. It sounds uh, so strange. Early 2000s is 15 years ago. Time flies. Yeah. yeah, I can't keep up with the calendar thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of evolved from there. We already had a Canner, Pennsylvania that was... Um, formed by Denise Lindsay, who was uh, very instrumental in, in getting it off the ground. And uh, at a certain point, uh, it's hard not to burn out in this um, industry. And so she stepped down and I took over, I don't know, a bunch of years ago and uh, then expanded into um, I'm on the board for the Retired Resource Project and have volunteered for some other nonprofits that are dedicated to thoroughbred aftercare. So, so what does Cantor stand for? <laughs> Communication Alliance Network for Thoroughbred X Resources. Say that again, please. <laughs> Communication yeah. Alliance Network for Thoroughbred X Resources. Wow, okay. Um, I had no idea that's what it stood for. <laughs> and not many people do, not many people do. Uh, but it actually, when it started back in 97, um, that was before the computer era. And so um, what would happen is they would post ads in your newspaper, you know, uh, three and four year old thoroughbreds available. And so that was how they kind of got started. But now that we have social media and everything, it, it's uh, taken on a new form. So Canner's been around since the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. Okay. Where did they start? Michigan. Wow. Interesting. I, di I didn't realize that. I, um, I have to admit, I, I know very little about Canner. Um, but what I do know is when I grew up and I've won't say what year that was. Um, thoroughbreds were the thing. That's what you rode. You rode a thoroughbred. And when you went to the horse shows, especially the hunter shows, there was thoroughbred and non-thoroughbred divisions. And thoroughbred divisions had 30 horses and non-thoroughbreds had five, you know, right. and their warm bloods didn't exist in this country at that point in time. And we had lovely, lovely thoroughbreds. In fact, you know, one of my favorite Facebook groups is uh, Equestrian Back in the Day. And they show pictures of all these horses back in the you know 60s and 70s that were basically all thoroughbreds, beautiful horses, um, really athletic, to, you know, just lovely. 
And, you know, then I, I'm not sure what decade the warm bloods came in because I went off to college and stuff. So that was probably in the eighties, I would guess, where that started to switch over. And then um, we lost our enthusiasm for our homebreds, um, which was really quite um, a shame, but I'm so glad to see it coming back because um, thoroughbreds are really, they're amazing horses. And, um, and it's so great that, to see that people are starting to appreciate them more and more. So um, you have a really lovely farm there. Do you, so do you foster horses for canter at your farm? On and off I have. Um, I'm trying to, to take a little bit of a break from that uh, as I, uh, I'm a little guilty of over committing myself. Um, but yeah, we've, um, we've had a number of thoroughbreds here uh, short term and uh, unfortunately the ones that aren't really um, very marketable are still here. But uh, one day, one day there'll be a market for 20 year old thoroughbreds who are grumpy and, and just like to be fed carrots. Yeah. Well, we're waiting for that. So the whole function of canner then, if I understand it, is to be able to take thoroughbreds and rehome them into functional jobs. Yeah. So um, canner is an interesting model in that it's, it's kind of a complement to the other traditional, um, rescue models or nonprofit models. So we try to, to offer a networking service rather than um, an, so much an intake service. Although we do have canner locations that, that take in. And, and like I said, I, I do take in, I just don't, don't like, I like to do it on a small scale, um, but- um, I've so been the in the farm and I know no one knows how many horses live there. So just, just a little yeah. FYI. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple here. Uh, but, you know, the, the canter model with the trainer listings, which is uh, primarily what I do. So I, I go out to the racetrack and I walk the backside and I meet with trainers and owners and I talk about their horses and the ones that are ready to retire. Um, some just because they're non-competitive, some might have an injury, some are just aging out, what have you. Um, I then use uh, my background in sport to try to help identify what that horse would excel at, uh, take their photos, their videos talk to their riders and things like that to get a, a feel for what the horse might enjoy doing in his next career. And then create a free online listing uh, for people to, to check out across the country, Canada. We, we've had people contact us as, as far as Japan, but uh, yeah. So, so you are actually the one that goes to the track and, and, and basically is the first contact with that horse on the track in terms of another life. Correct. And it's, it's almost like um, but the, one of the challenges is that some race track uh, trainers or, uh, or owners aren't familiar with other sports. So they may be looking at a horse and saying, oh, you know, this horse is, you know, I don't know what anybody's going to want with this horse. And I can look at the horse and say, oh, he has a nice confirmation for a certain career or, you know, this is energy he has might be great for venting or, or barrels or gaming and, and kind of it a little bit more in context um, so it, it's it, and it's also a way to help trainers navigate I, I also try to network with um, accredited nonprofits so that if there is a horse that needs a soft landing uh, you know I can make those first calls to see if there is an opening somewhere where the horse could be donated and, and given a little bit more rehab or, or extra care. 
You know, this is so interesting to me because, you know, we, we know that horses are on the track and we know that horses are uh, off the track thoroughbreds, but how they get from A to B is a mystery for most people. I don't think we even, um, certainly I, I didn't know any, I didn't realize I knew you as the person um, making those connections. And so are the trainers open to um, recognizing that their horse isn't suitable for the track and needs another home? I mean, I, I know that the biggest problem from my perspective is that there's an owner who's paying money for a horse and a trainer who has to pay his bills and a horse. And, and sometimes that can get messy. Oh, for sure. And a lot of owners don't have horse backgrounds. So they, they are very limited in what they know about the sport. Um, and so it's really up to the trainer to, to help educate the owner. And I, the, uh, the trend has been amazing. Um, most of the trainers that we work with really are concerned about where their horses go. And I've, I've felt a, a pretty strong difference from when I started on the backside, although I, I was also surprised. I had this very negative uh, 1970s cigar smoking old boys network kind of assumption when I when it went to the backside. I had, I had no interest in racing um, on a personal level. But quickly I realized most of, his, of most of the trainers are doing this as a family business. And these are small people that are not making large sums of money. They're just barely getting by and they're doing their best for the horses that they can. And, and most of them really do prioritize it. One of the benefits that I like about uh, Canner is that by having this be a, a networking um, sales opportunity, it incentivizes the trainers to retire their horses sound. So if a trainer comes to me and says, oh, you know, he came back with a fat ankle after his last race, you know, I might try him again. And I, you know, and I can step in and say, well, okay, but you know, if you give them a little rest and the ankle's okay, you can probably sell them for $2,000, which will go towards buying a horse that's more competitive. Or if you risk running him and he has an injury and he has a breakdown or the, the injury is worse, you're going to be liable to then pay for this horse until you can find placement. So, so trying to, to put a business aspect to it and a financial spin to it has helped educate a lot of, a lot of trainers. You know, you, you bring up a point again that I think a lot of people are unaware of and that, um, and it's, I, I can equate it to my business that, uh, you know, I, I happen to be an international clinician, but most of my clients are, are just people who enjoy riding. They're not fancy. They're not superstars. They just enjoy riding. And I think in the racing industry, we all watch the triple crown and we think that everybody, you know, it has big backers and big owners and lots of money. And that's not true. That uh, what you're telling us is that the majority of owners are kind of like my, my students. They're a lot of mom and pops, a lot of small businesses. They love horses and they really um, care about their horses, but the, the economics of it is a struggle. I, I really uh, empathize for anybody in the business because I, I don't know how they're surviving and it, it's um, you know, they're not, taking home big paychecks. They're not living lavishly. Their horses are taken care of mostly better than they are. Um, now I, I am at a small, you know, lower level track. So I'm kind of at the, you know, pretty far away from the Derby, but um, you know, these are very hardworking blue collar people for the most part. Um, so it, it's, 
it, you have to keep things in perspective. I, I know it's easy to paint this broad brush that, that, um, that you know, people are out to, to do something negative in the industry, but if you're gonna get into a business where you work 24 seven, no vacations, no nothing, and you hardly bring home any income whatsoever, you didn't get into it for the money. You got into it because you had a, a love of the animal. And um, you know, I think that needs to, to play a, a part in this. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that, that you're bringing that perspective. Um, because like I said, I didn't know anybody who was that transition person from track to off track. And, um, you know, I think it really gives us another perspective of hardworking people, loving horses, doing the best they can and trying to do right by their horses. And, and when this all started, there was no, there wasn't somebody coming to the backside. There wasn't somebody coming and saying, Hey, you know what, if you sell this horse now, you can get some money to buy another horse that didn't exist. And so these guys were really stuck between owners that wanted to see their horses run and horses that may not be ready to run and no avenue out. Yeah. And uh, if we're going to play the back in the day game, um, Sure. When I was younger, <laughs> um, it was really commonplace for people in, in our show circuit to go to New Holland to buy a horse or, or whatever. And obviously those outlets, you know. Um, They've closed or they're gone. They're lesser, yeah, they're smaller or lesser or farther between. And so, you know, when, that's one of the things that I've seen is when we uh, have a, a, a social perspective that shifts, there's this people that got caught in the middle, horses and animals that get caught in the middle because we've taken away certain avenues where uh, they could go and, and not created others. And so I think this is the thing that's so important with what you're doing with Canner and what the Retired Racehorse Program is doing is they're putting value on these horses and they're giving them a pipeline, an avenue out so that the, the owners and the trainers can find a, a way through just as much as the people on the other side. So really it sounds like what Canner's doing is it's that conduit between, between the horse on the track and finding a good place for him off the track. And without that, there's, you know, it's, it is, it's all about communication and making sure that, that people feel respected and appreciated for what they're doing and who they are so that we can find another place. Absolutely. And it's kind of um, a big gap between the sport world and the race world, which I'm hoping is narrowing a bit as, as we're seeing more crossover. We're seeing uh, more eventers that want to try to exercise, ride to get fit and, and work on the track. And then we see also uh, racehorse trainers who want to compete in the retired racehorse project because it looks ah. like fun. And yeah, so that's it, it's it really helps the horses in the end. Well, and I know that some of these trainers actually follow their horses and when they see their entered, they're really excited. So, so bridging that gap and, and, you know, that's it, so cool that they can see that what they did was the right thing for that horse. And here he is now excelling in another area. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are such athletic animals and they retire quite young. So they have a lot of years left to give. And there's so many riders out there that are, need a little help financially. I mean, yeah. none of us are, are getting any wealthier at least i'm not so <laughs> if they can compete and find a horse that's affordable and uh is still competitive that's phenomenal yep that's awesome all right so so you've got involved with canner and you go to the backside and you talk to these guys and then you help these horses 
come off the track, but what happens to them when, when they first come off the track? Well, it, um, it depends on the horse. Some transition in the second they step off the trailer and others do take several months, honestly, to, to settle into the new atmosphere. Um, and that, that can be one of the challenges that when people first buy a horse off the track, they aren't quite sure what to expect. And it is helpful if they have someone knowledgeable to walk them through the process or help them uh, with any questions that they have. Um, one concern always is introducing turnout since some of these horses haven't been turned out for several years. So it's always good to, to start in a small area like a round pound or a small paddock. Uh, that way, if they start running, it's kind of limited how, how fast they can go before they, uh, they run out of paddock. So it does kind of help um, make the transition a little easier. And, and they're also used to being handled all the time. So they're used to being in their stall probably 23 hours a day and then handled for an hour. And then you come home and um, sometimes turn out too much turnout at, at one time can be a little exciting to some. So you kind of have to gradually get them into it, keep that kind of consistent schedule so that they know what to expect. And uh, they like to work. So sometimes bringing a horse home and putting him in a pasture for a month is the worst thing for them. Sometimes they really come home and they want to go right to work the next day and keep that consistency. And of course, others might have some, some soreness or soundness issues that that require downtime. And so you, you just, you have the whole gamut, frankly, it's, uh, it's, it's really individualized, but. Um, so, most of so are there um, organizations that, how do I put this, that, that you connect the horse to so that they can have like this transition? Is there a transition facility, I guess is my question. Well, um, there are uh, nonprofits that intake horses and start that transition for people and, and usually put the first several rides on the horse, which is, is an awesome service. Um, so there's options that way. There's uh, private resellers that, that kind of do the same option where they'll, you know, they have their own plan. They have their own setup. Some of them are set up very well to kind of to start that process. And then other amateurs are, are doing quite well, bringing them home themselves. So it just but That's what I was wondering is, how, you know, the percentage of people that say, I want to off the track thoroughbred that's coming right off the track and they take it home. Um, th that's where I could see people could get into some trouble. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. Um, if someone's buying directly off the track, I, I always recommend that they have quite a bit of experience or are working directly with a trainer, barn manager, something like that, that can oversee the process a little bit. Um, and then, you know, read up and use some common sense. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's surprising how quickly these horses transition into new jobs, and, and we're always glad to see that. Yeah, no, I remember, um, this is going back again, back into the 80s, um, two horses came off the track to this barn I was at. One of them packed a five-year-old in a month. Yeah, yeah. Kid, and the other one took much longer to transition, and I don't know, is there a way to, is, uh, is there a way to evaluate a horse when it's going to come off the track as to, you know, how long that horse is going to take versus, I mean, do we have a screening system? I guess is my question. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, I'm always amazed because there's some horses that are dead quiet on the track and you get them home and suddenly they've awoken and they've had a complete personality change. I've also had ones on the track that were 
you know, jumping out of their skin at every moment. And as soon as they got on the farm, they took a deep breath and they were ready to go and um, be a little amateur horse in, in two days. So it is hard to judge that. One of the best guesses I usually have is, is pedigree. The one good part about um, x-ray sources is that these are registered horses and the pedigree is tracked extensively. And there's a lot of experience out there. Even uh, the Retired Racehorse Project has a, a bloodline um, blog where you can go on and kind of look for other horses, uh, other people's experience with horses with similar breeding to yours. Mm. And there's some lines that, that you know are going to, to be on the more um, eventer style, wanting to, to a strong work ethic, wanting to do something. And then there's some others that are a little bit more on the pokey side, um, which are great for amateurs. It, yeah, I you know, I hadn't it. thought about that as a resource, but I, because I can remember back when I was in Kentucky um, handling earrings and people would say, oh, this is a Nijinsky and, you know, and he had a particular personality. And so they, they could see the traits that the stallion or the dam would throw because there was a, was a lineage, there was a history there. Um, and so you could, you could check that out. So I never even thought of that as an excellent resource to know a ballpark on a personality, on a temperament type, I should say, as opposed to a personality, a temperament type and um, whether or not they would transition. But I guess there's also for anybody that's had an off the track thoroughbred, is there some um, registry or something that if you were gonna look at a horse that's of a particular lineage, you could contact somebody else who has a retired racehorse from that lineage and go, I love the cattail behind you, by the way. <laughs> Just for, she's not, she doesn't have a tail of her own, even though it looks like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not um, alone. But, but that is a resource to just connect with other people that might have similar bloodlines to say, you know, how was this horse and did you run into any issues there? Is that a possibility with some cases? Yeah, so with um, the retired racehorse has the bloodline brag, which you can go on, but you can also go on a lot of these forums like Chronicle of the Horse is still out there. And if you, you know, post in, you know, a question asking how are you know horses by a certain sire or dam um, doing people are usually quick to, to follow up and, and like to share their experiences well and haven't the um thoroughbred um organizations started to get involved with this as well i think um there was one i can't remember the name but um because you've got you've got a number of thoroughbred organization racing organizations. And I think that they're starting to recognize that if they can help these transitions, it's better for the whole industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think I read, I can't remember where it was that one of them particularly was doing some work there to try and just be involved um, because there's that owner education piece as well. And that's something that the thoroughbred racing industry can help with is educating owners when they're going to get into the racing industry um, to think about what's gonna happen at the end of the day. Exactly, you need to prepare for that. And trainers need to, to educate the owners. Um, what I see a lot, and I'm hoping this phases out is, but often a trainer will have an owner and what'll happen is when the horse is done running, they'll stop charging the trainer, the, I'm sorry, the owner for training and, and feed. And then the responsibility to feed that animal is on the trainer until he's able to place the horse. And that's, that's a little unfair. That's really, a, that's a huge burden on the trainer because he's got to feed all those mouths even if he's not making an income. Right, right. And so it, 
it then there's no incentive for the trainer to find the best home. The incentive is to, to move the horse as soon as possible. So, hmm. uh, you know, we have to make some, some education efforts there. Absolutely. You know, there's a, a, a great book that uh, Brad actually found. It's written by a professor at University of Virginia, and it's called Cradle to Cradle. Um, and the concept of the book is that when you um, look at any product, say, a, you know, a plastic cup, you, you want to think about what's going to happen to that plastic cup when it's no longer needed as a plastic cup. And so you plan ahead from the beginning for what's going to happen at the end so that there's a, a path there's a plan. And, and that would probably be something that would be great to see that if an owner is going to come into the industry, that they, that they're, they sit down and have a discussion about what's going to happen when your horse isn't racing anymore. And the same for the, the pleasure or sport rider as well. I think yeah. we need to, to kind of um, come to, so to terms with that as part of an industry. And, you know, we love our animals very much, but we also have to think what happens if something happens to me or, um, or if something happens to the horse? What, what's that next step going to be? Right. Right. Okay. So, um, so tell us about the rehoming process. So you made the connection between the track, you found some horses, some of them can go into transition situations. Some of them go directly to, to owners. Some of them, uh, might be in retirement facilities, but when we want to start kind of um, uh, looking at these horses for someone who's looking for a horse, let's look at it from that perspective. So say I'm, I'm curious and I, I want to find myself an off the track thoroughbred. Um, I want to do some uh, trail riding, maybe a little bit of dressage and maybe dabble in a little low level of venting, just kind of an all rounder. What do I do? Well, um, the first thing I would, first resources I would go to is your uh, nonprofit organizations. Um, do you want to go through the our screens to show? Oh yeah. Okay. And I I've made I've made you co-host so you can screen share. Yeah. Oh. I should have. Um, and while you're doing that, I'm just going to read this one chat here that says I've learned so much over the past seven years with my OTDB and access to the internet. I've been able to keep in touch with her original owner who paid for her surgery when she was injured training and then rehabbed and then put her in a rehoming pipeline. I also found interesting folks like uh, Kylie Roftus online, the OTTB guy who has a website tracking his breeding and a baby racehorse who is now in race training. I feel I know so much about my horse in her early years, priceless. Thanks to all rehoming organizations and all trainers who do the right thing by their racehorses. That's great. Uh, Kyle is actually a canter volunteer as well. And he also is working with the Caribbean Thoroughbred um, Athletes, which is an interesting nonprofit in that uh, they're down in Puerto Rico, which obviously they don't have the resources mm. for a lot of sport horses or retirement. And so that nonprofit helps to, to move horses back to the USA and find safe homes there. Wow. Um, which would be great. Yeah, but, Puerto Rico's under a lot of stress. They've never recovered from the hurricane either. No, no. No, it, it financially, it, it's a, yeah, there's just no expectation that they would be able to handle many off-track thoroughbreds. So it's a, a great opportunity for them to come back to the States. Many of them started running here and then were shipped to Puerto Rico. So now they get to come home and, and hopefully find another career. Um, so yeah, that's really great. All right. So we'll just run through this because uh, we've kind of come, come across some of these already. 
Um, but obviously now is um, a definite improvement on people's interest in off-track thoroughbreds. We just announced today the trainers that are going to be able to compete for the 2021 thoroughbred makeover, which is very exciting. There's going to be over 900 horses competing this year. Wow. So it, it's tremendous. Yeah. That, it, it's, that has been the single most, in my opinion, the single most advance in um, making thoroughbreds once again, the horse of the United States. Yeah. yeah. And it's really increased the value of these horses. And it's increased the value of the horses coming right off the track. It's increased the value for those that have put the training into them and now are maybe reselling them as confirmed in a, in a specific sport. So it, it's been tremendous. Yeah. Um, so some of the benefits uh, are why we think everyone, including you, Wendy, need a, an off-track thoroughbred. Uh, <laughs> you know, is that you have this opportunity to purchase a horse that's registered. Um, the stud fees were probably astronomical, well-bred, bred for sport, very versatile breed that has already been um, professionally started. It's been trained consistently. So, you know, very confirmed walk track canner. They, they um, teach how to swap leads on the track. So it's not quite the same as sport training, but these horses have a lot of skills. And they've also, many of them have traveled all over the country or at least have been on the trailer a few times. They've uh, been tied in their stall. They're familiar with that. They've been shod. They've um, been checked over by the vet. So it's really hard to find a comparable breed that has all this going for that is selling for a fraction of the value. So Well, and, and to that point, you know, um, horses are not like puppies. You don't want to get them young and grow up with them if you are not an experienced person in those early years. So the early years here are taken care of and you're now coming in at a better point in their life when they're rideable and you haven't spent four years like looking at a foal and it breaks its leg in the field or, you know, has a crooked leg or, you know, all those lovely stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's really great. And I, I really appreciate that they've been in consistent work. It's so hard when we're looking for a sport horse, you can find some great breeders, but then they don't have the resources to kind of begin the training process or can't afford to keep them in training regularly. And then they sit in the field and then, you know, so it's, it's really notable. I, I, I love that about them. Um, so, you know, not only do I think it, it's great for the horses, I, I think it's great for the riders. Um, two of the, the leading nonprofit organizations that have been working to um, improve the overall uh, process of, of retiring racehorses would be the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, which is TAA, and Thoroughbred Charities of America, um, TCA. We love acronyms and thoroughbreds apparently, but uh, uh, TAA has been around less than 10 years and they've raised 20,000, I'm sorry, $20 million. Uh, wow. Specifically, for rehoming horses. Um, so what they do is they've realized that we didn't have the infrastructure to properly process thoroughbreds and get them into safe homes. We, we didn't have quality nonprofits that um, were running with a professional mindset and the education to restart horses. So they stepped in and they, they helped with, with um, the financial aspect. And they aren't completely paying for these programs, but they are helping to cover some of those costs. 
Uh, so right now they have 81 nonprofits that are accredited, meaning that they've gone through a, an extreme line of, of requirements, both financially and organizational um, process, as well as being, um, uh, they, TAA goes out to the farms and checks over all the, you know, all the equipment, all the, the safety aspects, and uh, really make sure that the horses are being properly cared for and that funding is being spent in a responsible manner, which is incredible. So they are, you know, if you go to their website, they have a list of their accredited nonprofits. That's a great place to start if you're looking for a horse. So they're basically they're, a trans, they're, they're supporting transition facilities. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Because uh, unfortunately, um, horses are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you got to think each horse that's coming off the track generally is going to require at least two to maybe even $4,000 of care before you actually find a, a long-term home. And in order for that to be plausible, um, you need a lot of funding and grant writing is very, very um, extensive and no guarantee that you're going to get the funding there as well as asking for private donations. So TAA kind of tried to alleviate some of that responsibility by fundraising through and throughout the industry. You know, these are all um, like racetracks, breeders, um, you know, all the big players in the industry that want to help make sure these horses have a safe future. Uh, so TAA, TAA, do you know? Um, it was part of the Breeders' Cup Fund, the Jockey Club, and I believe, you know, another one of the big players there that realized that, that we had a, you know, a, a real issue here and um, wanted to get ahead of it and, and wanted to address it as, as best they could. So, That's awesome. Yeah, they're doing a great job. And uh, TCA, Thoroughbred Charities of America, is an older organization, and they have a more broad reach. So um, whereas TAA is only working with those intake programs that are bringing the horses in and then adopting them out, TCA is looking at, at a kind of a broader vision. So they, uh, for instance, they sponsor the, 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 the title sponsor for the Thoroughbred Makeover, which is incredible. I mean, that's, that's just um, a great way to, to keep that event going. And, you know, they also will, will look um, for other ways to promote the breed and promote the transition process. So uh, they're another integral player here. Both of them completely funded by the race industry and supported the horses. So those are, are really um, so on TCA here, you have, you include backstretch workers. So they're actually helping the folks that are on the track too. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, I don't think people realize just how hardworking those people are that are, ne they're never seen They're you know, they're on the backside. And I mean, I've been on the backside of racetracks, so I know that they exist, but if you haven't ever been, there are a lot of people back there working really hard. Yeah. The industry really does support a lot of jobs, which is, is great to see. And backstretch, work, backstretch workers are, are really have a tremendous job because, you know, they're generally maybe they're, they start at 5 a.m. and they're there till 12 or 1 p.m. But if it's race day, they have to be back at probably 3 p.m. and might be there until midnight. And then they go to bed for a couple hours and they start all over. It, it's, it's no joke. It's, it's a really tough job. And it's, it's a lifestyle. There's people, most of them don't have a day off or maybe they have one day off, you know, like it's, it's completely, they're completely immersed in the industry. Um, and it, it's great that TCA sees that there is need there. 
those were helping. Yeah, because that, I mean, that's really, that's awesome. I didn't realize that there was an organization uh, doing that kind of work. And, you know, I think one of the things people don't realize is the, and I don't even know what the number is, but the number of people that are employed because of the racehorse industry and they're, they're, they're blue collar jobs. They're not highly educated in terms of college or, you know, even high school, but they're hardworking people. And, um, you know, this is where that whole idea of cradle to cradle, when we look at the industry at a whole, it, it's a huge part of the economy. And so it's one thing to say we should just get rid of racing, but it's another thing to recognize what that would do to so many lives. And so the balance is always make it as ethical as possible, make it as safe as possible for everybody involved, but also to recognize the livelihood of so many people that are dependent on this industry. Yeah, and for some of these backstretch workers, I don't know what other jobs that they would qualify for, really, right. that they'd be comfortable with. Um, you know, it's um, very welcoming to immigrants. It's, um, you know, it's, it really provides an outlet for people that, for the blue collar worker that, that want to be outside and work with animals. It, it's really a great service. Yeah, no, it, it is. And I, I totally agree with you. And um, I just wanted to make that point because, you know, it's so easy to be on the one side of the fence and just go, this is wrong and we should stop it. But like anything, the more you start to understand it and you start to understand what's involved and the people that are involved and the lives that are involved and, and actually who, who these people are. I would love to interview a trainer someday and a, maybe you can help me and we'll interview a uh, a, a local trainer and just talk about what their life is like, because when we start to understand that we have a sense of humanity to this and realize it's not a simple, it's, it's not simple, it's complex. And you pull one thread and it's gonna cause a ripple effect through the whole fabric. Um, and so we have to keep working toward, and that's what this is all about, working toward how can we make this better for everyone involved, move those horses off the track, that need to be moved off before, you know, there something happens to them. Um, but at the same time, recognize all these other people involved with the industry that their livelihood is dependent upon. Absolutely, and you also have to think about what would happen to the breed if if we lost racing. Uh, it would, you know, it would really dwindle. Uh, same with, you know, you got a lot of um, land preservation because of breeding farms and hay, and there's it's a very complex issue for sure. Right. Right. This, I'm yeah. so glad that you're, you're bringing this information to us because, I, you know, I think it's really important. Okay, onward. <laughs> okay, so you're ready for an off-track thoroughbred and you're, you're, like you had asked earlier, Wendy, how do, you, how do you find one? So there's the intake programs, which are the ones where you know, it's a nonprofit. Hopefully, if you work through a TAA organization, it's accredited. And then um, those prospects would have come into the program. Generally, you know, they'll at least be introduced to turnout and be ridden a few times. So you can hopefully try them out versus buying off the track. And most intake programs offer a return contract if something happens. So say, you know, you can't afford half horses anymore or this horse isn't going to be what you're looking for, something like that, or you know, whatever happens. There should be a, a backup plan in, in place for the horse, which is, Ideal. That's that's what we all want is to make sure that there's a fallback plan. 
Um, so that would be one option. Next would be the listing programs and that would be Cantor. And there's also a program at Finger Lakes called Finger Lakes Finest that does a very similar service where it's um, just the, the marketing aspect without the adoption. So here's a chance that you would, would see a lot of available prospects, mostly priced quite affordably. Um, but if you're shopping on the racetrack, you, you need to have a little bit more of a background uh, to understand possible soundness issues to see if, you know, if you're looking at legs to see, oh, well, you know, there's an asymmetry here. Why is this knee larger than that knee? Is that, that a red flag? You, you have to be a little bit more savvy about, about the experience or have people with you that are experienced like um, legitimate trainers and, and experienced uh, thoroughbred people. Um, but the beauty of it is it's, great fun to go to the racetrack. You're guaranteed to have a good story when you leave. And <laughs> there are tons of horses available. Uh, this year has been an anomaly for everybody. So uh, usually you would go to our local racetrack and there would be 30 horses for sale. And I, I don't know that I would say that today, but generally that was the situation. So you go, you have one horse in mind, maybe it's not the right horse. And then, uh, um, then you go look at the next one or this trainer says, Hey, I, my neighbor over here has a horse. So it, it was, it's a great way to look at a number of horses. At one time. Uh, but the challenge is that generally, you, you know, this is a straight sale between you and that race race trainer. So there isn't usually a return option if, you know, your finances aren't, aren't well, or the horse um, is injured or what have you. And then the other primary way that we find that people are, procuring off-track thoroughbreds is through private resellers. So those would be people that, that might even find their horses through the listing programs or the intake programs, but then are developing them for a higher end sport horse. So they um, you know, generally have a, a type in mind that they think is very marketable, the big geldings of chrome or what have you, and um, you know, are, are knowledgeable usually in, in both the breeding and, and confirmation and know what would be a good potential sport horse. So they also take that initial risk. So that, say they buy the horse sight on scene, which is common nowadays, everybody's buying online mm -hmm. and the horse arrives at their farm and then you know, has an identifiable injury or maybe there was previous surgery to the horse, you know, screws in the ankle or something. They're kind of taking that initial risk. Um, so with that, they're going to, to charge more because they, they have to balance out in the end. But, but, you know, you'll see usually horses that are a little further along in their training, or at least see them uh, under tax so that you can try them and, and get a better feel for them. So those are the three primary ways we see that people are shopping right now. And the, uh, the for-profit resellers, I, I know with the thoroughbred makeover that, uh, if someone's willing to sell their horse or wants to sell their horse that's been in the makeover, they do have a listing, right? Am I right? Yes, and it's actually sponsored by the uh, SPCA, the ASS, ASPCA. Um, they sponsor a, a way to market those horses that have had that year of training and then um, would be for sale after the, the makeover. So we, we are getting buyers that are coming in for that purpose at the makeover just to see these horses that, that are ready to start their sport careers. So, so it's great because it, it, there's 
different levels of entry that are going to be based on on purchase price and um, and training. And so that it's great that there's these three basically uh, ways ways into the industry into the. Yeah. So if you're more knowledgeable and you have the time to develop a horse, you can most likely spend less. If you love thoroughbreds, but you recognize that you don't really like those greeny moments or, you know, the first jumps and things like that, then you can go with someone that's more experienced and then pay them for their, their expertise and their time training. That's awesome. Yeah. Things have, have really come a long way. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, you know, there's always bad days, but it's good to feel optimistic about no, I mean, when you look at overall where we were and, and what's available now, it's really impressive to see how much uh, energy and support there is for these horses and finding new homes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just a little bit more of a breakdown uh, of what the, the pluses and minuses are or the challenges are is, is with the intake programs, we have limited facilities that, that can process the horses. Um, and that's mostly financially driven. So, you know, it, it requires a lot more funding to transition a horse through an intake program. And that just requires more effort on those, those organizations to, to come up with that, either the grant writing or the, the private donors or uh, through TAA. Um, so the intake program can help a horse quite a bit, but a smaller number of horses. So you have that aspect, you know, there's always the, <laughs> the, uh, toss off. So um, usually they're providing long-term security, which is fabulous, but then they also have to think about that, you know, to be prepared for horses coming back years later that might have an injury and, and might have limited uh, marketability to be adopted again. So it, it's a challenge that way. But um, uh, some of the, the TA organizations that, that stand out are, are new vocations who have five locations across the U.S. now. They're a large organization and, and are adopting out about 500 horses a year, wow. which is fabulous. There's, there's a group, um, one of their new vocations locations is in Pennsylvania. Uh, so we've been there and great people, um, but they have a beautiful place in Kentucky. They're in Ohio. They just started Louisiana. Um, wow. And they also service New York, I believe. Um, and then locally to us, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue is a group that I've worked with on and off for a lot of years now and, and feel very strongly about them. So I uh, wanted to give them a little shout out. All these are TAA accredited, so they have gone through the process of, of being checked out. And then there's Rerun in New York, which is another large uh, off-track thoroughbred organization. So those are great places to look if you're, if you're shopping. Uh, then there's one other style of, of um, nonprofit that the race industry, as a way for the race industry to support rehoming, and that's with horseman sponsored programs. So those are programs that are sponsored by say 10 or $20 per, per race start for the horse goes to a retirement fund. Um, and these are operating in Pennsylvania, both at parks and at Penn National where I am. So each time that horse runs, there's 20 bucks, goes into a fund to help those horses retiring. So uh, from there, what happens is that uh, they operate kind of um, to link those horses to other nonprofits or other qualified private resellers. So if you have a horse that's ready to retire and you want to donate it to the program, then they would, would uh, in turn 
have that horse and usually a, uh, a stipend be sent to say new vocations or mid-Atlantic horse rescue to try and help cover some of those horses costs. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's paid for, you know, by the horsemen uh, for the horses and, and another way that, that the industry gives back and, and tries to protect their own. Um, and this little picture here, this is Reggie D. He was at uh, the makeover in 2019 and he was first a canter PA horse, um, but we didn't have much luck placing him because he was 10 and people were a little turned off by that. So uh, we reached out to Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue and they had an opening. So they not only took him in, but then they trained him and took him to the thoroughbred makeover and had a chance to highlight him there. And he found a home uh, either at the makeover or just after that. So that extra training helped him find a home, which is great. Yeah, so we love that. Uh, and then we talked uh, a bit about what I do with the, with the listing services. And it's a way to help a large number of horses a small amount. So uh, unfortunately, I can't take back all the horses that we placed um, for Pennsylvania. We're, we were in the 200 to 250 horses a year. So even if 10% of those horses didn't work out, we don't have the funding to take back so many horses. So we can only do what we do to try and get them out as a complement to these other intake programs um, because the intake programs just don't have the room to take the number of horses that are retiring. Um, so it, it's, it's a different approach. It does, you know, they're very separately organized, but both play a, a pretty strong role within the industry. Um, the beauty of these listing services is that they are so affordable to maintain. Um, we're an all volunteer organization. We provide all our own equipment. So basically uh, for the nonprofit to continue, just needs to, to keep the website going, provide for insurance and you know, we, can, we can help. So, so we can help 200 horses on $1,000 a year. I mean, that's, mm. that's a pretty good, good value. I yeah. mean, it can't, can't do what the other programs do, but it's a step, you know, because otherwise if the horse can't go into an intake program and the trainer doesn't have any contacts, what do you do? Exactly. So it, it's just another, another approach. There's, there's no one program that can address the size of numbers that are retiring. So it's nice to have a little variety. Um, I think we've gone through a lot of that. Um, the only other thing is that when you are purchasing on the racetrack, you don't have an opportunity to ride unless you are licensed as a rider within the race industry, which doesn't apply to most people. So that, that is another challenge. You have to be able to, to pick out a, per, uh, a prospect just watching the horse walk and jog and seeing it in the stall. So that's a little bit of a, of a challenge. Um, and just one more thing, just because I think this is important and we brought it up before, but what it does do when the race trainers are able to sell their horses is it does give them an incentive to do right by the horses. They, they can see a value in the horse. They can see a value in the horse retiring sound. And I, I can't emphasize how that is critical um, to a horse's future. If they can retire the horse sound, that horse has a tremendous benefit and a much brighter future. You know, and that's the thing is, if you can't see a way out, 
you know, and just think of any situation that you've been in where, you know, say you're in financial strife or something and, and you can't see the way out, it, it becomes very overwhelming and, and you become paralyzed. And so, you know, if we can provide avenues out, then these people are going to, uh, you know, see that there's a light as opposed to just what do I do now? I have to feed all these horses. Right. Make, make the, the choice easy, the right choice easy. Right. And then we talked a, a bit about private resellers as well. Um, so I think we've covered all this. You're, you're most likely paying a little bit more by going through a private reseller, but you may have a chance at a horse that has more training or maybe has even had some, some vetting. Uh, then we go to factors for selecting an OTTB. Um, all things to consider and kind of narrow down your search. So taking into effect the basic, basic statistics like age, sex, temperament, confirmation. I, I put posture on here because you'll see that uh, a lot of horses, um, they may look a certain way on the track. They may have developed a certain type of muscling or um, what have you but it's changing. So they, you know, there's some certain things in their bodies that, that will right themselves with proper work and, and proper care. Um, we'll often see horses that are kind of unicked, maybe, you know, kind of out behind and high in the neck. And uh, we find that if you develop them with proper sport um, techniques, a lot of that is gonna change and, and really improve the quality of the horse. Yeah, you know, how often have, have you looked at a horse and, and said, that horse looks like he's still on the track because <laughs> he has that type of muscling, right? Sure. And, and then you you come back a year later and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's magic. Yeah, and, and same with the movement and the soundness. Um, sometimes on the track, they can be kind of stingy and move like a sewing machine, you know, very up and down without really coming forward with the leg. And generally that dissipates with proper work. So um, sometimes judging the trot isn't really the best way to go. Uh, I like to judge the walk quite a bit, um, particularly since you know they, uh, the walk and the canter I, I think are harder to improve versus the trot, but it also gives you a better feel for you know, what is the, the length of stride they wanna have, how do they carry themselves and, and things like that. Um, also, you can always look at pedigree if, if um, I think that's, I don't look at any one of, of these things in isolation. I, I just look at all of them together to kind of get a, a photo of, or an idea of what the horse might be. And uh, one thing that people talk about a lot are how many races the horse had. Uh, assuming that if a horse has a lot of starts that it might have wear and tear or injuries, it's possible. <laughs> I. I I, uh, I tend to be a little bit, um, I tend to gravitate towards the war horses, but that might be because nobody else wants them. Uh, so, I, you know, I have one horse with 87 starts and another with 68 in the barn now. And uh, they're pretty strong. You know, they're pretty sound horses. Um, so some people like to buy horses that have never raced. It, it's all a preference. Um, I personally, if I was 
going to make a generalization, I go for ones that have at least 20 to, I'd say 20 to 40 starts is kind of an ideal range in my mind, but it really depends on, you know, it's an individual choice. I guess. But those horses that have, have made it to that many starts, uh, in some ways you could look at them as either tougher or stronger that they're holding up to do that yeah. many starts. So yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's all personal preference. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for war horses and, and I also tend to pick the horse that is uh, less inclined or is more inclined to be overlooked. Um, so that kind of gauges where I go, but it's not always the smartest thing to do either. So don't, don't, don't be like me. Don't, don't bring home a, a thousand horses and feed them for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> and then manage your expectations. So you know, you've got to also be realistic. Uh, sometimes I find that people are holding these off-track thoroughbreds to a higher standard than other horses, making generalizations about soundness or temperament. And uh, I take a little offense to that. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, you've got to, got to look at things in perspective. I'm not sure why a Warm blood is worth $100,000 that has an OCD, but a thoroughbred that has a chip is not worth anything. It, it's kind of, a, I don't know. It's just a different perspective. Yeah. But, uh, and, and I think in managing expectations, you know, like I always tell my students when they get a new horse, it's gonna take them a year to know the horse in all seasons before they really know the horse they have. And I, and, I think that that's also at, at minimum true with thoroughbreds that, you know, you've got to give them time because they're going through a huge life change, if they, especially if they're coming straight off the track um, and to give them an opportunity to adjust to a new lifestyle takes time. Yeah. And um, right now the trend seems to be reselling uh, and that's fine, but I find a lot of people are, are selling the horses in such a short period of time that I'm not sure that they've, had the opportunity to really see what what potential is there. Yeah. So I hope they're not missing out that way. All right, so a couple of questions to ask yourself before you run to the racetrack. Um, <laughs> what's your experience level? Are you, you know, are you, do you have experience with green horses and off-track thoroughbreds? If not, are, are you willing to get the help in order to, to make that process a safe and smart one? Um, do you have a safe place for you to keep your horse and to, to ride and train? We certainly um, meet people that buy horses directly off the track and start them on the trails or out in wide open spaces and do perfectly fine. Uh, so I, I'm not judging, uh, just saying, you know, these are things to think about and think about how you handle things and what you would, what your comfort level is to make sure that it, it's going to be successful. Um, have you lined up? your vet, farrier, trainer, friend, um, all these are, are important aspects to horse care. And I, I should be kind of a, something that you don't, uh, don't skimp on. These are all important um, players on your team, frankly. Um, are you familiar with common track injuries? So if you go to see a horse and, and you look at his legs, are you able to see if, if there's any type of, of potential blaring concern or if you do a vetting on the horse and there is a concern are you able to evaluate whether that's um, still suitable for your use or whether that's, that's a, a deal breaker 
I think it's smart to have a clear criteria because I also find that people go to the track and fall in love with a pretty face and they, they throw their everything out the window or they go and somebody's like, you know, they, they're going to look at this 16 ham bay gelding for hunters and they get there and there's this free 15-1 chestnut mare and suddenly go, oh, I think that'll work. And, you know, maybe it does. But... I call it taking your adult with you. <laughs> You know, I, so many of my clients, they're lawyers, doctors, professionals, you know, team leaders and all this stuff. And they get around the horses and their children, they're emotionally seven and the horse yeah. cracks his eyes and they fall in love and buy a completely inappropriate horse. Now that's not all of them. Okay. But um, it's a common occurrence. And I think it's really important that we take our objective self with us when we go look at these horses. And I think that's what you're trying to say is, um, yeah, there's a, I'll talk to people and they'll say, you know, they'll give me a list of this is a complete no go. Oh, if the horse has any of these three concerns and then you're shopping, they're shopping with them. And all of a sudden they fall in love with a horse and it's, it has one of those concerns on the list. And I'm like, OK, you realize you're completely breaking your cardinal rule here and they have to live with the consequence if that's if that's what their decision is. But yeah. Um, I, I recommend a pre-purchase exam just just to see what's what you have. It, it can be challenging on the racetrack to get. Um, you're not going to get the same type of pre-purchase exam that you will with a sport uh, sport vet. And those vets, uh, at least for Pennsylvania, have to be licensed specifically for that racetrack. So you can't just bring in your vet from home. Um, you have a very limited pool of vets to work with. Um, but you know, if you're planning to do a pre-purchase exam, I would just include that as part of your budget for purchasing a horse. So if you uh, have 1500 to spend, then start looking at a horse for 1250 so that you have 250 for your pre-purchase. Just, just to make sure that you're, you're again, acting like an adult. And, and then, you know, think about everybody wants the happy ever after, and we hope that's what happens. But if there are challenges, you know, are you prepared to get some help? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of great horses out there that, that didn't make it just because there wasn't the, the resources to, to get even a couple lessons or a month training or, or whatever. Um, these are, are things that you would expect with any green horse, not just one off the track. So um, just just wise to, to plan ahead and make sure that you're setting yourself up for success. And then uh, the contingency plan. Um, I don't know that we can have a welfare discussion without bringing up the role of euthanasia, um, which isn't anything anybody wants to talk about, but I, I think it's important for any horse person to understand that um, euthanasia is, isn't something that should be looked down upon and it shouldn't be judged. And it, sh it should definitely be considered a better option than giving a horse away to an unknown home or sending it to auction or, or whatever it is. That or just turning it loose like they did in 2008. They literally just turned horses loose to fend for themselves in some places, you know? Um, that's that cradle to cradle thing. And I, I think this is a really important point, Sue, and probably it, I, I, I might look to see if I can find someone to have a webinar where we can have that discussion because um, 
it's something we need to think about. Now, um, I've been unfortunate enough to have my horses die tragically. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, um, that's a whole nother story. Um, but it's, it's something that horses don't live forever. And there are circumstances where euthanasia is appropriate. Um, and it doesn't mean that you haven't looked at other options or sought other options, but it needs to be one of the cards on the table. And I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to get rid of that stigma a bit because I, I talk to people all the time uh, that call me and say, oh, I have two 30-year-old thoroughbreds and I'm moving and I can't take them with me. And can you take them? And unfortunately, no. And I don't know anyone that, that would. And I, I don't know that it's fair to the horse to, to relocate it even at that age. But uh, sometimes people just need to hear that it's okay to euthanize. Um, I certainly would much rather know that my horse had a peaceful ending than to risk it, um, particularly risk it to someone that you don't know, you know, to put that horse's future in their hands. Um, so I, I just, it, it's like something that comes up a lot in what I do and um, it's never easy, but I think it, it needs to just be a little bit more openly discussed. Mm -hmm. so that's my, my spiel. Uh, and then of course we talked to, here, sorry. Um, I talked to a little bit about the retired racehorse project. We just announced the trainers for the year which is exciting. This is the largest competition for newly retired racehorses um, in the world. So uh, it's really developed extensively over the last 10 years. The trainers are given about nine months, I'm sorry, 11 months to prepare. There's over a hundred grand in prize money. It's quite a bit over that because there's a lot of special awards that are handed out as well. And uh, there's 10 disciplines offered. Each horse can be entered into two. So you could do fox hunting and barrel racing or whatever your little heart desires. It's um, really known for having a, a great community feel and an opportunity to, to learn about training and the breed and everything related to running a small um, resale business or whatever you want to do with your horses. So we can't say enough good things about the effects that the Retired Racehorse Project has had on the breed and on the future of a lot of these ex-racehorses. So, and uh, aren't they doing a combined one because they didn't have the 2020 that they're having the 2020 and 2021 together? Exactly. So due to COVID, we, they had to postpone last year's event and now uh, this coming October, we're going to combine 2020 and 2021. They will compete as two, as two separate um, entities, essentially. Divisions. But, yeah, divisions, correct. And then there'll be a tremendous amount of, of thoroughbred people and horses there, provided we're allowed to have spectators with COVID restrictions, but we certainly hope so. Well, and by then, you know, that's the end of, toward the end of the year, so but it'll be so interesting to compare the horses that have been in training for basically two years versus the horses one year. And yeah. um, I'm really curious uh, about that. I think it's a, it's gonna be fascinating. And of course we did have Jen Reutz, who's the uh, executive director of 
of the Retired Racehorse Project as a webinar guest. So you can always check that one out. Um, and she talked all about the project and it's really, really amazing and fascinating and just exciting. Yeah, Jen's instrumental, it's fabulous. <coughs> and yeah, we could talk about the makeover and all the makeover horses for days, but um, yeah. make sure that's on your calendar. Excuse <coughs> Yeah, I think that, uh, and that, that program hasn't even been around, what, 10 years, I think, and it's just done so much for the industry. Yeah, we, we hit 10 years last year, um, so doing really well and just started out as a very small um, event and now has bloomed into this, this uh, destination event for yeah. so many people. Yeah. All right, so I just wanted to go, I know I'm getting a little long-winded here, so <laughs> just wanted to go over a couple horses, kind of highlight what, um, what to, you know, what to expect with your off-track thoroughbred. Uh, this horse is, uh, he's six now. He um, was just, uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Should play. You should have to find your little play button. Okay, maybe that. Let's see here. Sometimes it's the space bar. Oh, shoot. Oop. Nope. I can't do it for you. I'm trying. <sighs> shoot. Usually if you go over and put your mouse on the video, there should be a little uh, at the bottom of the video. It should show up your. Yeah, it should. Yeah. Ah. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, this is oh. small, but hopefully it'll okay. work. Okay. Maybe once so. you start it, you can make it full screen. Oh, shoot. Oops. Oops. Uh -oh. <laughs> Yeah. You, hit, you hit start from the beginning. Oh, there we go. Uh -huh. And now it won't play again. All right. All right. It, it'll okay be small. It's small. You can just, yeah. this is Kind of the limited view that you get before you go shopping. So you would see photos like the one on the left and then a short walk trot video. Uh, so you'll also notice that this trainer recently had broken her wrist <laughs> and is jogging this poor horse uh in in her backyard for us and so you know there's not a whole lot here that you're gonna write home about um this was right when covid was starting and the trainer had approached us because she was concerned about what was going to happen racing had been shut down and uh um you know she wasn't sure about income and and all those things so she had uh she had um, reached out with some concerns. So he was actually one that we had taken into our program and we had a volunteer who was willing to, to foster him, Justine, and then immediately loved him because he was very well-minded and is gearing him towards the, the 2020 makeover, which will be part of the mega makeover. Ah, oh, shoot. Oh, mm. All right, um, so this is him. Just the video was taken four months after he was restarted. Who kind of gives you a feel for how he's developing. He's gaining some muscle there and, and just has a lovely way of going and was really just a nice choice or it's gonna be a nice choice for the makeover because he is super well-minded. Uh, this is another horse from last year. She was a war horse. Uh, so she was retiring at age nine. 
She had 78 starts, wow. but really pretty. And we were just sent this video a couple days ago. She's gearing up towards the makeover as well. She'd be competing for the 2021 year. Just gives you a little clip of her as they're developing her. So they've had her a couple months now. Um, so obviously the concerns about bringing home an off-track thoroughbred usually range from soundness, a temperament, um, suitability for both your sport or your rider. So maybe you bring the horse home and he jumps more like a, a jumper than a hunter or something like that. These are concerns that, that people face, but generally if you can put the training into them, they're gonna have the value that you're gonna be able to find a, a great home for them. And then uh, how you can help. Um, yeah, make just, that slide, just start your slideshow from that slide if you can. And then it'll, if you go up to start play slideshow, you should get a choice of, of from current slide. Oh, no, oh, I pushed the button, sorry. Oops. Okay, that's okay, we can go through again. <laughs> there we go. Whoop. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Okay, so if you'd like to get involved, it doesn't mean you have to bring home a thoroughbred, although, you know, that's kind of my spiel. But uh, we recognize that they aren't for everyone. And it, it's not that owning them is, is the end all and be all of, of helping them, because you can certainly promote them through social media or help other people um, learn about off track thoroughbreds, kind of break those stereotypes. Uh, and, and also, if we could get back to kind of encouraging riders to focus on their individual improvements with their horses versus um, judging uh, apples to oranges kind of, you know, we have a lot of sports that are, are not objectively judged and it, it's hard to, to feel, it, it's hard, if that's your only point of reference, it can be hard to be happy with, with your horse if you're judging them compared to something different. So that's, that's my spiel for off-track thoroughbreds at the moment. Um, and I'm probably gonna have to go back, back to these oh. as well. Uh, do you want to talk about Surefoot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, you have that well, video of the mare that is that a, yeah, or is this a different horse? This is a different one, but the, I think the mare is a better video. Uh, can I just go? To, um, I just unshare your screen, find it, and then reshare because it won't follow you. So while Sue's doing that, um, if anybody has any questions for Sue, just pop it in the chat or the q and I, I think she was pretty darn thorough, thorough there. So, um, oh, I do have one question for you, Sue. Um, you know, they race other breeds. Yes. Are they doing similar things for those other racehorses? I, yes and no. Um, standard breads obviously are a big concern. Um, those are, that's a breed that often gets filtered to the Amish and then <clears throat> may end up in a, in a, in a bad situation. So that's, that's a concern, but there is more development. There are a couple standard bred uh, rescues and new vocations that we mentioned earlier as being accredited for uh, thoroughbreds is also accredited for standard breds. So, so they are putting in the effort on both fronts. Uh, some of the other breeds like Arabians and quarter horses, 
Canner does list those horses if they are um, if they are on uh, on our on our farms or our, I'm sorry on our racetracks. So like Delaware Park has Arabian Racing and they will list oh. Arabians that are retiring. So you can always check those out. Um, quarter horses are more common out west, uh, so you can check those out. I think uh, Texas has that option. So yeah, there, there's some effort, but I. I it's a little surprising to me that the thoroughbred race industry gets a lot of flack, but they do put a lot of, a lot of um, points in place to try and protect the animals. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I don't know much about the other uh, breed racing industries. You know, you don't hear much about it. That could be good. And that could be not so good. It's really hard to say, you know, I mean, when they're not getting the kind of visibility. Okay, do you see my screen yet? I do. Um, you see um, BB? All right. Here we go. You want me to just play it? Is that the easiest way? Sure, yeah. Just click okay. your little free up your space there that's blocking it in the right hand corner. And by the way, you need to free up some space. I know. <laughs> this is BB. Uh, BB is currently unemployed. Can you hear that? Yeah, but can you, um, can you drop you the sound out? A bit because because I want to ask you about her. Oh sure, yeah. Um, you can let it play. Um, yeah. But is she is she an off the track thoroughbred? Is that? Oops, it disappeared. Sorry. Right. Yes, she's an off track thoroughbred. Uh, she's a beefy little thing, isn't she? Yeah, that's why I was <laughs> looking at her. She's kind of chunky. How long has yeah. she been off the track? Oh, uh, I think three or four years now. Uh, originally, her owner had planned to breed her, but has decided not to. So now I think it's time for her to, to find a job. Okay. And so just tell us the story here uh, about oh, sure. what's going on. Okay. So this is Bibi. And uh, the concern that we were having with her is that she has separation anxiety and she gets very excitable and, and very animated going from and to the field and usually spends quite a bit of that time on her hind legs, a much much more dramatic than what she did there. But, you know, you could see that she still is, is a little bit concerned. So I thought to, to try the Surefoot pads with her since uh, I find that they have a lot of uses. And so that was her first time ever experiencing the pads. Uh, she had never seen them before. And so she just stood on it for maybe, I don't know, two seconds, mm -hmm. not no real time. But it seems that even just that short amount of time, she's starting to settle down. We just tried it a few more times here. And I think that this is that what I love about this video is that um, that you captured this, that she'd never been on Surefoot before, but that, you know, it was, this is a real situation is kind of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think this is common for a lot of people that bring home off-track thoroughbreds. They, they have anxiety. They want to move, you know, you're in the retraining process or, or you haven't started yet. So you don't have a lot of resources of what you're going to do with the horse. And she consistently, I mean, it, it was so bad. I couldn't let anybody else handle her because she, she was like this little bunny rabbit every day. Um, so I just kind of thought, you know what, it, this has been going on. I'm not making any progress. Why not try the Surefoot pads? And just the second time here now that she's been on the pad, same thing, only about two, two, three seconds. But now she's processing. You can see some blinking there. She's got a lot of lip movement. 
now she's going to finally check out the pad and kind of see what it's about. And she's also so much quieter in the last 30 seconds. So it's so changed. interesting how she stood there so quiet, like still, um, yeah. and checked it out. Yeah, she, she was really kind of you know, dumbfounded there for a second. <laughs> and same thing, you know, like now she's, her legs have stopped moving. She's kind of checking in. She's like, oh, what is that thing? So this will be our third attempt on this leg. And I, I think that's also a, a really good point that you only did the one leg. It wasn't like you did a whole um, series of legs. No, it was just kind of one of those, uh, here's 10 minutes. And honestly, I think it, we only spent five, five minutes. There. It's five minutes, yeah. <laughs> five minutes. You know, what, what can we change or what, how can we um, work towards something different here? And she also starts releasing very quickly. Um, in a second here, she'll start the yawning. Which is, you know, so I, when I watched this video because you, you posted it or sent it to me or whatever, and I, as often as I've seen this happen, I'm still amazed. I'm still amazed that you can take this little square foam and in a minute or two, have this horse with her neck down walking quietly, standing quietly. Um, and then of course she, she does start yawning here and, and the next time. And I'm just, I wish we could understand this better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it also opens up for me, what are some other places where I could implement a sure foot to kind of get away from, I guess, particularly with thoroughbreds, one of my, one of the patterns I see frequently is the horse will start out with anxiety. You'll put the rider on, the rider feels the anxiety and then becomes tense or is waiting for explosions or, or waiting for the horse to, to do something wrong, which then adds another layer of anxiety until you have um, some sort of spook or whatever. And then the rider goes, ah, oh, see, I knew this was gonna happen. And then tightens up further on the reins or tries to force the horse's head down because they know when the horse's head is up, that is, there's more tension. So it, it, it's a, a negative cycle. If there's a way to break that, I think it would help both the horse and the rider. Yeah, but then Diane, I think you're seeing Sue um, answer your question here. She did the one foot a few times and then she's going to the other foot because if you, you know, it's three is a good number. You know, we do a lot of things in threes, um, but just giving them a chance to experience it and, and feel it again. But you can see here already now, just the first time on the right front, we have yawning. Um, and, and so what it speaks to actually is uh, something that I think people um, don't always recognize in these thoroughbreds is that they're, they're very, um, they're bred to run. And so their nervous system is kind of at a heightened place a lot. And their behavior is just that intensity and when we can drop them down like this they're like oh, they just want they want to be just like everybody else you know they want to be peaceful <laughs> yeah they don't enjoy being tense or anxious and it's a challenge working with them to trying to bride that comfort for them so if if this is a, a tool that can um improve the safety of the rider and improve the comfort for the horse yep why not give it a try and then you told me something about this horse. So you, you've done this one session, which was five minutes total, including the movement. And how has she been after that? 
she hasn't knock on wood has not been rearing at all um the only other so the rearing went on for um at least two months i would say that you know every time we you know we'd bring her in and we bring her in regularly but you know every time it would be on her hind legs there was one instance where she she didn't do it and that was after uh an hour and a half bodywork session where she was pretty much in that parasympathetic state of mind anyway. But um, the time after that, after the body work, she was back to the rearing. And then this was maybe two or three times after the body work. But since this little session, every time we've taken her to and from the field, she has been quiet and she's been very methodical. She hasn't been doing any of her usual playful antics and has been quieter in the barn when we bring her in. Oh, it's had so some sort of, of lasting effect for her. That's really awesome. And, and, you know, I would just, um, I would suggest that you do that same short session one more time. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you can get it filmed, that would be awesome. So that we have that connection. Um, but it, it, I have seen this where, you know, one session can make such a dramatic change. And, and again, with these yeah. goods, they're so, they're so sensitive. Um, and I think we tend to misread their sensitivity, um, but they're just, they're just looking for that comfort just like everybody else. Sure. Um, one other one I have here. Can you see my um, screen now? Yep. Okay. So this is Sparky. Um, so what, what I did is I lunged him and then did some surefoot and lunged him at the end of the session. So I, the surefoot, uh, that he did wasn't super expressive or exciting, but I figured I'd show you what what we started with and what we ended up with. Oh, <laughs> you can see why he gets his name. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so really, there's no excuse for him to be like this. So I probably shouldn't show you these videos, but uh, he's 16. But you know, this This is real life, right? People put a horse yeah. on a lunch line and sometimes this happens. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So he's just, just kind of a fun loving guy. Um, but it was pretty tense that day. It's been snowing here. The, they're turned out, but they're not really playing around much because it's just mucky. And so he was feeling good. So we started here. You can just see he's just he cross canners, he does, has his head up in the air. He's not really paying attention. So then we did the surefoot session and this is what we had afterward, which I think is a little more civilized. And how long was the surefoot session? I would say probably 15 minutes. So just standing on pads, going for a walk, the typical kind of process. Yeah, I did, I had a one lunge in the middle there and he was kind of halfway between these two horses. So, oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, and I just like that he's a lot more balanced here. You know, this is a much better quality trot. I, I, as a, you know, if I'm gonna put my dressage hat on, I would much rather have my horse move like that for five minutes than run around. Yes, like well, and the chances, 20. you know, I mean, when they're, when they're tense and, and expressing themselves the way he was in the first video, the chances for injury, this, all of those things, you know, you're trying to move him because it's winter time and he can't move out in the paddock, but that is not a useful movement necessarily. Um, and, and generally he's not going to relax on, you know, he's, he's fit enough that he could do that for two hours straight. And I, you know, 
Wow. Um, okay. So that, yeah, he would have continued that way. No, that's yeah. awesome. I love, I love that. Um, and I love the fact that there was kind of like that in between when you had done partially. <laughs> yeah. He was a uh, head shape. He was at least shrouded some in the middle one, but it, his head was like a giraffe. It was terrible. Uh, and this is just a little, I was going to try to show uh, the session that of Gus's first Sure, this is a, sec a, a different chestnut here. Uh, equally fun, but um, so this is him in the middle of his session and you can just kind of see that he's, he likes to sway on these pads. He's got, uh, I think two mediums up front and two slants behind, but I just thought it was kind of neat to see. Uh, we also have, have video of the first time we worked with him, Wendy, which was um, last year. Yeah, I, I, I thought I, I was like, I know this horse, right? Yeah, yeah, you've seen him. I don't know if I can show, I probably can't. Because um, you can't see my, the change of screen now, can you? I'm actually, can I can see your uh, movie video editor plus. Okay, I'm not sure if I can blow this up or not. I, I apologize, I should have got, gotten a little bit. That's okay. You know, Sue, we can always have you come back and do more. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let me just show this real quick. If we, if okay. we'll play here. Um, just because it was really fascinating. This was, oh, shoot. I don't know if it'll work. Um, if not, I'll send it to you. This was when we did like the, when we set the pads on a circle. Yep. And um, it was just interesting because you could see the horse select the pads, which I thought was pretty cool, but it looks like it's not going to play. I think your computer is not happy My with My computer you. is not happy with it. yeah. <laughs> That's okay. We'll have you come back and we'll do more. Yeah, I don't want to take up any more time for you guys, but uh, no, this yeah, is great. I've uh, really enjoyed it, I hope. Yeah, just unshare your screen so we can wrap it up. You got it. Great. Great. Yeah. No, this is super. And, and I just, I so appreciate that you have been there for so long, helping connect the thoroughbreds with new homes. And um, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about the backside because that, that's the piece we don't get. You know, we don't get that connection um, to understanding what's going on. And um, so that was fabulous. And people are really, they're, they're commenting in the comments that they've really enjoyed the webinar. Um, and like I said, so I think we're going to have to have you come back and we can talk more about some of those horses that you've put on Surefoot pads. We'll do that on a Friday. All right. Maybe uh, I'll put some for sale signs on them or something. Yeah, perfect. No, if they no. are, cer certainly. <laughs> I'm almost very happy, proud of me if I did that. <laughs> but no, I, thank you. I really appreciated your time and, and really appreciate an opportunity to not only talk about the breed, but also the industry and, and the players that are, that are trying to help the situation. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And just remember, everybody, it's uh, week three of the contest. I forgot to mention that at the beginning. Just go to the Surefoot Equine Facebook page or the Fans of Surefoot page. Um, week three contest is up. We'll be drawing the winner on Friday. You have to enter all six, five contests to be eligible for the sixth grand prize. So be sure you sign up. Thanks so much, Sue. And we'll see you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye.